Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have found the world's finest podcast for music to listen to when you're riding in a barrel out of the halls of the Elven King. We are going to start this episode, like every episode, with a little bit of trivia. Okie dokie, Joe. Are you ready for tonight's trivia? Hell yes. Good. I love that enthusiasm. That's right. That's all I got, though. Yeah, that's all I can handle. This quiz is entitled, Every Day I Write the Book. And we're going to be talking about a literary inspiration for a bunch of music today, so we're going to warm up with some other stuff in the same vein. I'm going to name a song and an artist who wrote that song, and you just tell me what book or story inspired that song. Okay. We're going to warm up with something easy. White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane. Alice in Wonderland or Through the Looking Glass. Sure, one of those. Okay. Bruce Springsteen, Ghost of Tom Joad. I think it's just Tom Joad. Or, I mean, it could be The Grapes of Wrath, but I think it's just Tom, isn't it? I think Grapes of Wrath. Okay, but I've, okay. The character's Tom Joad. You're right, you're right, yep. Yep. Paranoid Android by Radiohead. Is it a Philip K. Dick book? Nope. I don't know what it is then. It is Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Okay. All right. Tales of Brave Ulysses by Cream. Is it The Odyssey? The Odyssey. Very good. Excellent. Have you read any of these books I've mentioned? I have read all of them so far. All right. All right. Weapon of Choice by Fatboy Slim. Weapon of Choice? Um... I have no idea. I've, I don't know the song. It's got one real famous line that's repeated over and over, and that's, if you walk without rhythm, you won't attract the worm. I don't know. That's from Dune. Dude. Oh, thank you. Okay. One of my favorite oh, books. One. Yeah, yep. And one of my favorite David Lynch movies. And one of my favorite sci-fi miniseries. I love it all. It's one of my favorite Sting movies. <laughs> It is my favorite Sting movie. Whip It by Devo. Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pinchot. I know. You were waiting for it. I was. Killing an Arab by The Cure. Albert Camus' The Stranger. I believe it's pronounced Camus. Albert Camus' The Stranger, but yes, you're right. Mastodon, Iron Tusk. I was looking at these for a quiz for mine and i was worried we were going to write the same quiz on this one that's why i kind of went away from it but i did go th- i went through a lot of these to try to do some research because i i was thinking the same thing i don't know what this one is that is moby dick you ever read moby dick 
Sucks. Okay. Just a few more. Gary Newman, our friend's electric. Do androids dream of electric sheep? They do. You got it. Soma by the Strokes. Oh, I don't remember what this one was. Is it some kind of dystopian novel? Mm-hmm. Young adult? No. I guess it depends what sort of young adult you are. Lord of the... No, it's not Lord of the Flies. I don't know. What is it? Brave New World. Okay. Oh, good one. Okay. Magazine. Songs from Under the Floorboard. Is it Edgar Allan Poe? No. Oh, Dostoevsky. Yes. What book? Notes from the Underground. Very good. Good job. All right. And the last one, probably the hardest, but I think you might get it. P.J. Harvey, The River. This one, and I, I looked actually to see if I had this song on vinyl to play it during our song section. I don't have Is This a Desire. Crap. And now I don't remember what the book was. I don't remember. It is Flannery O'Connor and her short story, The River. Yeah, one of my favorite authors. Yeah. Next time you come down, I'll take you to her uh, house. Near Savannah? Where is it? She was born in Savannah, and I've been to her her birthplace, too, and they have a little museum. But her farm is in Milledgeville, which is a couple hours from here. But it's great. It's a small farmhouse, so. Any peacocks left? Yes. Yeah? That's really cool. Yep. Okay, so I think I did okay on that. Yeah, you did really good. I have the audio quiz today, and what I am going to do is I'm going to play six clips of music, and pretty standard uh, for what we do. I would like you to name the artist, the title, and then at the end, tell me what the theme of the six clips are. Okay. All right, here we go. Track one. So over I jumped and she pulled me down, down to a seaweed bed. Pillow made of a tortoise shell. She placed beneath my head. She fed me shrimps and caviar upon a silver dish. From her head to her waist, she was just to my taste, but the bottom part was a fish. Track two. Track three. Track 6 
those beautiful sailors journeyed to the South and the North Americas with ease in their ships with painted sails. How do you feel about those? You, you know a lot of them? Uh, not as many as I usually do, actually. I know, uh, I know a couple dead to rights, but, and there's a couple I've got guesses on. There's one, the last one, mm-hmm. I know it. Like, I know I've heard it. Yeah, I didn't want to put too much of that one in because you would have gotten it right away, I thought. Maybe maybe when we go around at the end of the show and swing around one more time and get a chance, I, I might pick it up. But gosh, I know that one's bothering me. I should know that one. I probably have that one. And we'll play those clips again after our song section, and then we will give the answers. Okay, I think it is time to move into or to start our journey into our turntable talk. Our fellowship. Sure. Our two-man fellowship. (laughs) (laughs) I call Gandalf. Oh, man. (laughs) You have to be Samwise. Is there someone named Pip or something? (laughs) Yes, you could be Pip. There is. I'll be Pip. You could be Pip and Mary. Ugh. Fine. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind My relationship with J.R.R. Tolkien goes back almost as far as I can remember. My dad made sure of it. He read me The Hobbit repeatedly as early as I developed the mental capacity to understand the tale. A taped-from-TV copy of the Rankin-Bass Hobbit cartoon was my most requested VHS. I dressed like Frodo for Halloween when I was nine years old. My mom drew extra hair on my naturally oversized and already slightly hairy feet. Many late nights I'd catch my dad in one of his classic poses, reclining on our plaid couch with one hand holding his glass of Cutty Sark and Amaretto and the other holding his raggedy copy of The Silmarillion. Much later in life, my dad and I saw the movies together the first night they premiered. We still make inside jokes from the films or the books when we get together. We both still love Tolkien and the world he created. Once, as I was digging through a box of my father's junk, I found a couple of interesting tokens. Tolkien's? Alongside old college yearbooks and various trinkets, there were a couple of plain circular buttons. One read at big block letters, Welcome to Middle-Earth, and the other bragged, I have a hobbit habit. I remember asking him about the buttons, and he just said that back then, everybody loved Lord of the Rings. It was just the thing, he explained. I don't think I truly understood what he meant until recently. Joe and I had kicked around the idea of researching the relationship between Tolkien and rock music. As we started looking at it, I came to understand that his impact was far greater than me and my dad bonding over some nerdy stuff, but that Tolkien was a cultural pillar. Much like Sauron's flaming eye, J.R.R. Tolkien has kept a forceful gaze over the entire landscape of popular music since the 1960s, and seemingly all styles have fallen under his shadow to some extent. Short of religious texts and, oddly enough, H.P. Lovecraft's unspeakable horror mythos, we can't think of any other literary work that has had such presence in music. Moby Dick, The Canterbury Tales, and even The Divine Comedy— all have dedicatory songs, themed albums, and the occasional band that 
claim to be fully loyalist acolytes. However, Tolkien's reach is far greater. Different realms of music genres sent forth bands and musicians to join a fellowship united under his banner. Ancient enemies joined under their fealty to a literary king. Prague and folk, New Age and death metal, classic rock and jazz, and probably a million song poems. All composing songs about orcs and elves, dwarves, dragons, wizards, and hobbits. But the path to understanding the relevance of Tolkien in music is as winding and mysterious as the trail through Mirkwood. It's dark, smoky, and full of tripping people. Our quest today on par with destroying the One Ring in the fires of Mount Doom is to not only trace the roots of music's fascination with Middle-earth, but discover why it has had such a lasting power on some genres and why it has been totally ignored by other styles. When was the last time you heard a punk song about smog? That's the dragon in The Hobbit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I know. I'm explaining it to our listeners. <laughs> if, if they haven't read Lord of the Rings, they've already skipped this episode. Sure, the whole journey would be made easier if we just fly on the back of giant eagles. But what fun would that be? Kind of a lot, probably. On today's episode, we are going to seek to understand the bands who spent hours stenciling runes on their guitars and drumheads, writing lyrics in the black tongue of Mordor, and filling their pipes with Longbottom Leaf. The bands that wandered into fame beyond belief, and those who were lost to the darkest depths of Khazad Doom. Today's episode, Tolkrock, the musical obsession with Middle-earth. Part of the reason behind Lord of the Rings' success, and its eventual impact on music, was based on Tolkien's own consternation and his avid protestations. The three books that make up The Lord of the Rings were published in 1954 and 55, nearly 20 years after his children's book, The Hobbit. Tolkien, as an Oxford professor, saw The Lord of the Rings books as high-minded literature, which was something that wasn't always agreed upon by the snickering fellow professors. He often spoke of going back and reworking The Hobbit into a book for intellectuals and adults as well, but was thankfully hindered from that exercise by his secretary, who was adamantly opposed to such a travesty. Hardback versions of Lord of the Rings sold well in the UK, but not so much in the States. In fact, the books had to be imported into the US by Houghton Mifflin, as no US publisher bothered acquiring the rights until 1965. This wasn't much of an issue to Tolkien, who rather disliked the youth of America. That said, it's hard to find much he did like beyond his own writing. Patches on his uh, elbows. Tolkien had first been approached about finally releasing a paperback version of The Hobbit in the mid to late 50s by Penguin Books, a UK-based paperback book publisher. Tolkien scoffed at the idea. No highfalutin author would ever debase himself by releasing literature in paperback format. I'm sure that's what he sounds like, but with an accent. <laughs> Not only did he think it would cheapen the book, but also felt it might take away from hardback book sales, which ended up being ludicrous. Science fiction and fantasy paperback were starting to flourish in America, and The Lord of the Rings was a series that two paperback publishers became especially interested in. First, there was Donald Wolheim, who was an innovator in paperback books, and one of the reasons 
fantasy and sci-fi became so popular in this country. He released the first ever paperback sci-fi anthology in 1943 and was instrumental in introducing to the world writers like Harlan Ellison, Samuel R. Delany, and Ursula Le Guin. He also invented what was then called the Ace Double while he was working at Ace Publishing in the late 40s. The Ace Double, which is kind of hard to say and not <laughs> smile a little, the Ace Double is something that's still used today and is still pretty popular in children's books. The paperbacks were two books in one. When you were finished with the first book, you flipped it over upside down, and the second book was on the back. So there weren't any back covers. There were just two front covers. At roughly the same time, Ballantine Paperback Books became the primary paperback publisher in the U.S., and they too had a focus on sci-fi and fantasy. They helped launch the careers of Arthur C. Clarke, Ray Bradbury, and Theodore Sturgeon, who Joe just informed me is not a giant talking fish. It was Wilhelm who first approached the persnickety Tolkien in 1964 about acquiring the rights for a paperback version of the trilogy. He responded by saying that he would never allow his great works to appear in so degenerate a form as the paperback book. This response ruffled Wilhelm so much that he made it his mission to find a way to publish Tolkien's books with or without his approval. That same year, Wolheim, upset about Tolkien belittling his beloved paperback format, found a loophole in the copyright laws and exploited it. He believed that the Lord of the Rings copyright had expired in the U.S., who already had pretty lax copyright laws at the time. By May of 1965, Wolheim's ace books began publishing Lord of the Rings and selling them for 75 cents while paying no royalties. Tolkien was pissed and, according to his publisher, had to go back and make some changes to the text of Lord of the Rings to get the rights back. By October of 1965, Tolkien, his head steaming like Yosemite Sam, wearing a bow tie, felt pressured into allowing Ballantine Books to sell a paperback version to compete with the pirated Ace version. Ballantine sold the books for 95 cents each because they had to pay royalties, but Tolkien started a campaign to rid the world of the blasphemous editions. He took to the mail, and, along the help with the Tolkien Society of America, TSA, slowly but surely stymied Ace, who ended up reaching an agreement with Tolkien and paid him all of the royalties he'd been owed. This may have been Wolheim's plan all along. He just wanted these books to see the light of day in America, bound by his beloved paperback, and it worked. Not only that, but the excitement it caused boosted sales to an incredible degree. Well, and one thing that that I kind of read about is the Ace covers are way better than the original Ballantine covers, right? They're awesome. And even Tolkien, Tolkien did not like the Ballantine covers at all. He, he liked the Ace covers. There's a quote from his biography by Humphrey Carter. Tolkien says, when talking about the Ballantine covers, he said, what has it got to do with the story? Where is this place? Why emus? And what is this thing in the foreground with pink bulbs? <laughs> he actually liked the Ace ones because they represented the stories or resembled the stories. Right. The other ones are just kind of weird, funny-looking landscapes more than anything. But I do think both the types of covers kind of helped sell them because they both of them kind of look psychedelic in their own way. They do, yeah, you're right. I was thinking the emu ones are more almost surrealistic. The Ballantine ones, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. 
The other ones are a little bit more like golden era sci-fi or fantasy type covers, but but cool. Yeah, totally. Like Forbidden Planet. Very stylized. By the end of the 1960s, Lord of the Rings had become a sensation with college students and became the number one paperback of 1966. And this is what led the swarms of unwashed hippies into adopting what they believed to be Tolkien's peace and love message about a utopian society. After all, what's more huggable than a fat, dirty, pipe-smoking, stinky, hairy-footed midget? I tried to use that line in college, and it did not work. (laughs) 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 Oh, that's great. Now, as far as this peace and love thing about the Lord of the Rings, that just makes me think that those hippies didn't actually make it very far into the books. Tolkien referred to these hippies as his deplorable cultists and said that many young Americans had become involved in his books in a way he had not. He was despondent, and according to his biographer, Tolkien said that his work served as a substitute faith for a generation deprived of religion, particularly in the United States. The timing of the popularity of the series lined up perfectly with the dawning of psychedelics and LSD. And the combination of the two created some very interesting things. Psychedelic posters of hobbits, uh, buttons like Ryan's dad owned that exclaimed, Frodo lives, and go, go, Gandalf. There were communes using Middle-earth names that were formed all over the country. And most interesting of all, there was a Lord of the Rings sex club in New York. And I hope it was called Helm's Deep. (laughs) I gotta ask you a follow-up question: the the sex Lord of the Rings sex club thing. Yeah, of course. I'm a I'm an expert on that. What uh, what went on at these Lord of the Rings sex clubs, and were they expensive? Well, it was in the 1950s in New York. I think the most popular ride there would have been the Glory Hobbit Hole that was really low to the ground. <laughs> as far as price, I really I really don't know. <laughs> Good work, Joe. <laughs> digging, digging that factoid up for us. Uh, what was the name of the club? Helm's Deep? It was Helm's Deep, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Unsurprisingly, it was garage bands and psych bands who first embraced their love of Tolkien's paperbacks and started adding that inspiration into their tunes. The first rock band to reference Middle Earth that we found was the New York psych pop outfit The Hobbits, who released an album in 1967 called Down to Middle Earth. Interestingly, the band was helmed... Deeply. ...by Jimmy Curtis, who was a second-rate teen idol before starting to write more psychedelic material. Here is his track, Down to Middle Earth. this rare promo only 45 from texas garage band the magic rings with their song dedicated to the 
60s favorite slogan, Frodo lives. San Fran psych harmonizers, neighborhood children, sang of the peaceful lands of the Shire on their ethereal track, Hobbit's Dream. Your shadow falls behind you as you're walking down the street. Your mind's engaged, you're not aware of the people that you And cobblestones, you're wandering wild, no direction home. You feel as if you could touch the sky, and yet you give no reason. At almost the same time, English psych rockers and small face collaborators Skip Bifferty recorded a song about their favorite hairy footed race called The Hobbit. There was a hobbit, 13 dwarves in all. Leader who is tall and the human man of magic. For what it's worth, a similar song called The Gnome by Sid Barrett's Pink Floyd was also out at about the same time and very well could be a nod to Hobbits but it's probably just that 60s halfling zeitgeist. Decidedly Darker was Pearls Before Swine's 1968 dirge, Ring Thing. Despite that dumb name, it's probably one of the scarier Middle-earth songs of the early era and set the stage for the obsession with the dark side of Tolkien's writing to come later. Handfuls of musicians started wearing their love on their fringed canvas sleeves. The not-Mark-Bolan half of the band Tyrannosaurus Rex was a guy who called himself Steve Peregrine Took. He also later formed a band called Shaggart, going from being Hobbit-named to being Uruk-named. Speaking of T-Rex, the single Ride a White Swan is definitely both about the elves sailing back to the Undying Lands and or Mark-Bolan dosing acid off the bill of some unfortunate waterfowl. There was a fantastic Baroque psych band called Gandalf that didn't necessarily specifically allude to Middle-earth, but leaned heavily on the mystical aesthetic. Here's a track from their 1968 album called Can You Travel in the Dark Alone? You are lost in the ocean of your dreams and what is Across your mind and there's your home 
In the mid-60s, the Beatles, led naturally by John, envisioned a psychedelic film adaptation of The Lord of the Rings, complete with writing original songs. John even approached Stanley Kubrick about directing, though he was probably busy getting off his moon landing job. However, Tolkien, who at the time still retained the stage rights, was no fan of the cacophonous rock music. He apparently lived a few doors down from a loud garage band, who he described in letters as one of those Beatle groups, and thusly responded to the Fab Four, You shall not pass. The cast for the movie was even determined. Paul was going to be Frodo, Ringo was Sam, George was going to be Gandalf, John was going to be Gollum, and the model Twiggy would be Gladriel. Additional potential casting had Yoko Ono as the treacherous Grima Wormtongue, George Martin as Elrond the Know-It-All Elf Lord, and Mal Evans as the dumb mute White Tree of Gondor. Can I play the alarm clock? <laughs> From what I was reading, and I'd never noticed it before, at the end of She Said, She Said, John kind of mumbles at the end during the song's fade out. He is chanting the words Ash Nazig. Is that right? Yeah, good enough. Which are the first two words of the invocation engraved on the Ring of Power. I tried to listen to it the other day, and I could not hear it. Could you hear it? No. No, I, di- I didn't. But I've, And I've never noticed it at all, and I... You know, I've listened to that song probably a hundred times. It could also just be, like, nonsense, <laughs> or or it could be him pretending to talk backwards. Well, it's kind of important because when was... She said she said was what? Revolver, right? 66. Yeah, so that's one of the first rock music mentions of Lord of the Rings, if it's truly... If he truly did it. Yeah, because they don't get enough credit. Yeah, already. they have to invent yeah. Lord of the Rings music, too. Great. I really love the Beatles, but people give them an awful lot of credit for things that they didn't necessarily do. The Hobbits, that band we mentioned, I think was the first one that we could find, as far as like straight rock music, that, that really leaned into it. But who knows? Truly, it was Led Zeppelin that popularized entwining Tolkien with rock, with the same pioneering enthusiasm that they entwined mud sharks with hotel orgies. Along with stealing blues songs, Robert Plant went ahead and borrowed from Middle-earth imagery. 69's Ramble On, 71's Misty Mountain Hop, and Battle for Evermore had explicit references, and many of their other songs had more oblique allusions, not to mention all sorts of ruined-out imagery on their album covers. Oh, and Plant's famous dog was named Strider, just to make sure that everyone knew he was all in with the man in tweed. Around the same time, Geezer Butler was under the spell of the books, and also under the spell of narcotics, when he wrote The Wizard for Black Sabbath's self-titled debut. The song conflates Gandalf with their drug dealer, which makes sense since Ozzy probably couldn't tell them apart anyway. I'm guessing he was probably more of a Mumbledore fan. An orc horde's worth of wannabe rockers tried to emulate what the giants of rock were doing. Turning up the fuzz and giant riffs, bands built a sonic altar to Tolkien and played murky proto-metal songs about the fantastical worlds of the occult with druggy eyes and undeserved gravitas that were barely heard outside of Mom's basement and the local bowling alley. Numero put out an excellent collection of these on their Wayfaring Stranger series called The Dark Scorch Canticles. 
Deluxe Editions even came with a tabletop game. We're going to play a song from that comp a little later in the show. A few other fun songs slipped past the Black Gates, but never made it to the glorious peak of Mount Doom. In 1969, the band Armageddon released a single album, which might have been entirely forgotten if not for this song, Bilbo Baggins, which is a song from the perspective of Gandalf trying to get the Hobbit to join the quest, but with the tenacity of a drunk frat boy inviting a co-ed back to his place at closing time. Here is a band called Sam Gopal with a ripping rocker called Dark Lord, which featured a pre-Hawkwind Lemmy, who probably assumed the song was about a pre-Hawkwind Lemmy. Black wings across the sky bring the nightfall. Winds wide around the stars, black riders call. Light fading, time's wasting, hell's waiting for the dark lord. Or how about this chunky ode to the evil one from a band called Sonora with their song named, simply enough, Song of Sauron. Along with their rougher cohorts, progressive rockers also held on to the Lord of the Rings like it was the precious. In 1970, Genesis released the song Stagnation on their first record, about the same time as Ramble On and The Wizard. The song's lyrics about wading by a silent mirrored pond and eating fish definitely seem to evoke Gollum. I thought that that song was about Phil Collins kind of seeing somebody drown and then somebody else not saving them. But I think Peter Gabriel said that Phil Collins was Gollum in the song (laughs) and in real life. It's about Peter Gabriel wanting to drown Phil Collins. Much more directly was a couple of songs by Rush's Neil Peart, who is uh, dead now. (laughs) (laughs) Way to bring it down. Holy cow. (laughs) Where did that come from? (laughs) Should I not say that? Much more directly was a couple of songs by Rush's Neil Peart. The first is a proggy, cheesy ode to the elf's forest realm, Rivendell, and the second, a three-part, 12-minute opus about Sauron called Necromancer. It works well, actually, as Geddy Lee's voice perfectly mimics the deafening mating call of the Nazgul. Styx was way late to the game with the 1978 release of the song Lords of the Ring. No one knows why the S got moved. 
One of the mysteries of the Valar, I expect. Probably just afraid of getting sued. Tolkien did like to sue people. He was litigious. Like in this case, when Lesser Prague acts, who definitely paid homage to Tolkien, also feared his wrath. Merillion, the British post-punk Prague project, was shortened from Silmarillion for fears of Tolkien's lawyers breaking upon them as Urukai looting a village. The band Camel had another three-part epic with their track, Nimrodal, The Procession, The White Rider, which posits the question, what if the One Ring was actually a one Moog synthesizer? Played by a Nimrodal? <laughs> of course, the undenied champion of Tolk Prague is Bo Hansen, with his spectacular 1970 instrumental album, Music Inspired by Lord of the Rings. Trippy guitars, frolicking synths, loopy drone, sinister organs, jazzy flourishes, which predate similar work by Rick Wakefield and Brian Eno. Hansen was given a copy of the trilogy by a girlfriend and fell in love with the book. He left the girl and then moved in with a friend to record the album. That friend was evicted thanks to Hansen's magical raucous. Undeterred Bo, who apparently has an ego the size of Balrog's testicles, left his buddy to find a new home and went on to swindle a radio station and a couple dudes to finish his tribute. Published first as Sagan Ohm Ringen. Can you help me with that? Joe, you know that I took Swedish in school. Let me handle this. Okay, thank you. Orange Borge and Sagan Ohm Ringen. Thank you. I, I think our fans will appreciate it. That really helped me quite a bit. I didn't. I thought it was going to be more a phonetic. <laughs> oh, I can do it phonetic. You want phonetic? Yes. Orja Borja Sagan Ohm Ringen. <laughs> <laughs> in Swedish, the album surprisingly soared like a giant eagle until Tolkien heard about it and forced Hansen to change the name of the record to Music Inspired by Lord of the Rings and was not permitted to use any of the vocal tracks on the planned UK and US releases. No matter, the record was still a huge success soundtracking countless smoky makeout parties. Here's a snippet from Black Riders. Beyond psych, hard rock, and prog, there was even more styles representing their admiration. For folksters, Sally Oldfield, sister of the totally tubular Mike, put out a heavily token-influenced album called Waterbearer with a multi-part track called Songs of Quandai, which veers from straight balladeering to synthesized singer-songwriter to Afrobeat folk.
Yeah, it's really cool. In the clip, maybe you heard the Afrobeat folk. We should put that part in, but it's unusual for sure. Yeah, definitely. Trader Horn went full-on Renaissance Fair for their cut, Three Rings for Elven Kings. The band was a duo consisting of the keyboardist and not Van Morrison vocalist from Them and the former lead singer of the Fairport Convention, Judy Dibel. The album is pretty good if you're into that British folk revival stuff. I'll pass. Could you imagine how great it would be if uh, Sandy Denny and Van Morrison did some uh, Lord of the Rings songs, though? That would be pretty amazing. In a alternative history where the other parts of those bands got together, not the the bad parts, the lesser parts, maybe. Yeah, and at that around that time when Van Morrison was still good, it'd be really nice. Oh yeah. The next clip we have was written by someone also dead. <laughs> The next clip we have was written by someone who was on a path to become the governor of Texas before heroin, alcohol, and drunkenly leaping off of roofs got in his way. Towns Van Zandt wrote Silver Ships of Andalar before the Silmarillion was even published. That's, that's how on top of the Hobbit fad he was. Though Andalar isn't a place in the known world of Middle-earth, he does sing of Valinor, which is from a tale Bilbo Baggins told in The Fellowship of the Ring. But every thought in that noble company was forward man through the lifeless plains of Valinor where reigns the dark and frozen one And with tongues of fire and glorious eyes we pledged our mission be. According to Towns Van Zandt, he said, This is my folk epic. Warriors against dire odds and maidens a-watch in the keep. It comes from reading too many Lynn Carter editions, I'm sure. It took 36 hours and an entire legal pad to get it on paper. I'd like to see Tiny Tim record it. There wasn't nearly as many, but occasionally jazz artists would give a nod. Don Cherry had a song called Gandalf's Travels. And in the swingingest parts of Mirkwood resides Australian jazz composer John Sangster, who released not one, but three Middle-earth eclectic and abstract jazz records, starting with The Hobbit Suite in 1972. Here's Sangster's Belladonna Took. Welsh composer Donald Swong wrote a song cycle of British art songs with words from the poems, from the set, from the trilogy called The Road Goes Ever On, with some input from the Tolkien himself. The music is about as fast and furious as an Entmoot on the history of moss migration.
Yeah, I have that record. Is it good? No. On the private press front is the bizarre 1972 relic, the Grey Wizard M.I. Chris Wilson was a Greenwich Village troubadour who unironically dressed in a cloak and pointed hat and recorded under the name Gandalf the Grey. Sprinkled with pretty fun and fuzzy psych folk songs, a few about Middle Earth, it is one of the most sought-after and rare private press records, and it even has been reissued recently. And here's a junk shop glam lost single by the band Bombadil with their song Breathless. Bombadil was actually a prog band, Barclay James Harvest, making fun of glam, which is a bit like the orc calling the goblin black. We're playing it, if only because Tom Bombadil is my favorite character in the trilogy and because the song sounds like a brilliant mutation of glam and Muzak. Certainly not enough of that. Even the Jesus people got in on the fantasy fun. The All Saved Freak Band, one of the biggest 70s Christian rock acts, had an album called Christians, Elves, and Lovers. Cher had an album called that too, right? She had one called Halfling too. (laughs) It's about her husband. (laughs) Anyways, this record had a dude dressed as Gandalf on the cover and this odd track called Theme for Fellowship of the Ring. ASFB combined evangelical theology and millennialism with their love for the fantasy world of Tolkien. A copy of the album is part of the permanent Tolkien collection at Marquette University. And of course, the most powerful song in all of Middle Earth, and regular Earth for that matter, is Leonard Nimoy's two and a half minute magnum opus, The Ballad of Bilbo Baggins. We covered this extensively in our Finding Nimoy episode, but because we care about you, the listener, here is a bit of the greatest pop tune ever. In the middle of the earth, in the land of Shire, lives a brave little hobbit whom we all admire. With his long wooden pipe, fuzzy woolly toes, he lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, he's only three feet tall. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. 
I feel like I get younger every time I listen to that. Like it's keeping me alive. As the hard rock and prog wave subsided in the late 70s and early 80s, the culture of fantasy-loving fanboys dug in hard into cheap paperback high-fantasy sword and sorcery novels by Tolkien followers like Terry Brooks and David Eddings. They spent their Friday nights gathering in basements to roll D20s against the whims of dungeon masters. Gary Gygax, creator of Dungeons & Dragons, was naturally massively influenced by the work of Tolkien. So much so that the Tolkien estate threatened legal action, surprise, surprise, prompting the removal of the hobbits and ents from an early version of the game. One does not simply walk into Mordor and infringe on intellectual properties. I know it's not exactly on topic, but do you remember that themed band? It was Twisted Sister and Devo playing together as D and Devo. <laughs> Do you remember when that band backed up Kenny Rogers for a tour? D and Devo first edition. <laughs> <laughs> or do you remember when they when they did a reunion tour thirty years later and they advanced D and Devo? <laughs> advanced. A burgeoning music scene focused on loud, fast guitars, heavy beats, and over the top vocals was just starting to take shape. As these long-haired weirdos started headbanging in garages, there seemed to be an unspoken reverence to Tolkien. This motif would snowball to the point where they are now, countless bands using the ideas, names, and sometimes words from Middle-earth to their own metal band ends. Certainly, fantasy wasn't the only literary influencer. Science fiction, horror, mythology, and gothic writing all imprinted on these bands. But Tolkien was a head above. No one is quite sure why these metal bands all of a sudden get such a Bill Boner for these books. We had a discussion at length about this. Like, why do these tough guys who want to appear and often are evil seem to bow to a tweedy Catholic Oxford language professor? Two decades earlier with the hippies, it made some sense as an important handbook to counterculture with the Lord of the Rings focus on the horrors of war as well as anti-materialistic, pro-nature, and communal living themes. This was very different, though. Those themes were all eschewed for their opposites, the dark elements of the novel. War, destruction, fear, death, industry. There's actually very little about why metal took such a dark shine to Tolkien's writing. And much of what we did find in interviews comes across as either super simplistic, like, we were big fans, everything else was boring, or esoteric bullshit from madmen rantings, whose writings have been 86'd even from Facebook, which I found out without meaning to. I was trying to send you a link to this horrible human being, just so you could read a little bit of it, and I sent it, and it said, this has been blocked. So I thought it was a mistake, so I sent it again, and again, and again, <laughs> and it just blocked, 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 blocked. It's not allowed to be sent, apparently. Yeah, that's probably a good thing. We have synthesized it down to three main hypotheses for the 180-degree turnaround in musical influence. First was the influential bands. Guys in metal bands were no doubt listening to Zeppelin, Sabbath, Rush, and probably, though they might not admit it, a bunch of the prog stuff too. Since Tolkien's worlds were such a big part of the bands they admired and emulated, it almost gave permission for it to be cool enough to draw inspiration from. The second factor is lonerism. 
Metalheads have a reputation for being more antisocial and running in equally esoteric crowds. No doubt that the nights spent reading fantasy novels and playing role-playing games helped them find their niche to embrace and eventually empower their nerdiness. These were topics which created a bond between like-minded, fantasy-loving metalheads. And like the characters in Lord of the Rings, they didn't like haircuts. The final factor, and what often seems to be a driving force, is that Tolkien presented the perfect aesthetic of evil. Basically, the malevolent presences in The Lord of the Rings were an easy shorthand for seeming wicked. The look and sound of the names, creatures, locations, and ceremonies, which Tolkien drew from Norse and Celtic origins, seemed to embody evil, and metal bands wanted to capitalize on the incarnate Maleficence. Certainly, Middle-earth was not the only hunting grounds for metal as pagan, Viking, medieval, and satanic imagery, which is used almost interchangeably. However, the odd thing is that other than a few notable exceptions, which we will discuss in a moment, it seems like the appropriation, for the most part, is surface level in the naming of bands or albums or songs. In other words, many bands use the fantastically sinister-sounding Tolkien reference in a name and then sing nothing specific of the trilogy again. Just kicking ass and Tolkien names. Examples of this go all the way back to proto-doom heavy metal legends Sirith Ungol, who named themselves after the western mountains of Mordor and its guard tower whilst bonding over Tolkien in an English lit class. Sirith Ungol formed way back in the 70s, but didn't release the first album until 1980. They would also use the fantastic Michael Moorcock artwork for their album covers. German death metal band Morgoth got their name in 1987 from one of the Dark Lords of Melkor. Swedish melodic metalheads Amon Amarath took their name from the elvish designation for Mount Doom. Two notable Norwegian black metal bands drew their name inspiration from the dark aspects of Middle-earth. Gogoroth is named for the volcanic ash-laden wastelands in the middle of Mordor. And Burzum is so titled for the word that means darkness in the black speech of Mordor. It is probably not a coincidence that the frontmen of both these bands are pretty horrible people. Gogoroth's singer Gall has done multiple prison stints for violence and abuse, including restraining a man, slapping him, squeezing his balrock testicles, and then forcing him to drink blood. Not to be outdone, Burzum's frontman is the notorious racist church arsonist and murderer Varg Vikernes. Varg is the only person who we found who tried to explain in detail the connection between Tolkien and metal, but it was, like everything he says, insane ramblings that are worth absolutely nothing. Really, we don't usually give much airtime to violent assholes like this, but I think it's important to see how perspectives of this fantasy work are twisted and manipulated to reinforce people's own worldviews rather than get a wider perspective on others. 
what was it that that guy said about why he grabbed that guy by the balls and made him drink blood? So the whole thing about that Gaul guy, when he was in court, the way he defended himself, as he said, all that, the whole restraining, slapping, squeezing, and forcing him to drink blood was just a big, big confusion. He was actually just trying to get a little bit of blood out of his carpet. But these guys, I think they both kind of touch on this problem with Tolkien making too clear good and evil. It's that they can just say, well, we're going to just take the evil side and run with it. And it just doesn't, doesn't leave a lot of room. Yeah, there's no gray area. No. Occasionally, bands would just have a track that would harken back to their favorite fantasy. One of the greatest is 1985's Battle at Helm's Deep. Presumably, they're talking about Helm's Deep from the book, not the Lord of the Rings sex club. The track is from a band called Attacker, which is perfectly gaudy thrash that sounds like it came from the mind of a 13-year-old who had watched his heavy metal Betamax 30 too many times. Megadeth had a song called This Day We Fight, which is an allusion to Aragorn's pre-battle speech at the Black Gates. Though we're probably thinking this is from the movie, not the book, but who knows. There are some bands that almost exclusively write and record music about Tolkien, which is sometimes classified as Tolkien metal. Though the sound and style vary somewhat, Tolkien metal is usually more atmospheric and moody, often incorporating layered, symphonic, or even traditional melodies to give a more epic sound with the black or death metal vocal barking screams. Think Guar sending Fairport Convention through the meat grinder, or an Iron Maiden cover band at Open Mic Night at the Prancing Pony. It's pretty cheesy, but it's also a lot of fun. The earliest band to make the journey to the lonely mountain of Tolkien metal was Austrian power metal band The Summoning, formed in 1993. With programmed drums, synthesized strings, and infusion of lute and flute folkiness, there's a high fantasy quality to all their work. They would also write entire songs in the black tongue of Mordor, kind of like Billy Joel did with Uptown Girl. Here's the song The Passing of Grey Company, from the Minus More Gold record. Blind Guardian is another band whose name is unequivocally wrapped up with JRR. They had been around the German power metal scene since the mid-80s, and eventually fully embraced their inner goblin. Their 1998 Nightfall on Middle-Earth is an entire concept album based on the mythopoetic marathon, The Silmarillion. 
There's a rumor that the German band was at one point in negotiations to help soundtrack the films, but Peter Jackson told them to fly, you fools. Here's their song, Into the Storm. My favorite of the Tolkien metal has to be the Norwegian band Isengard, with vocals that sound like Saruman chanting spells atop his dark tower for which the band is named, the guitar riffs that could melt the One Ring, essentially a solo project of Dark Throne drummer Fenris, the logo for the band came from a Middle-earth role-playing game. Another band we enjoyed as much as salted pork is the folk metal band Minhyriath that wields a bagpipe with the same reckless fury as a charging oliphant. Is that like from Justified or Deadwood Oliphant? He's, he's more of a Deadwood Oliphant. Bagpipes make any musical style about 30% more terrifying. Just ask Rufus Harley. After the Jackson trilogy in the 2000s, the fever for Tolkien was lit like the beacons of Amon Din, and the black gates opened, pouring out seemingly numberless Tolkien-inspired bands with their band logos drawn in unintelligible fonts. A handful are true Tolkien metal like Avatar, Battlemore, and Rivendell, but the vast majority tend to just homage Tolkien through eponymous means. Here's a truncated list that I will not be able to say I don't have any idea how to speak orc, but I'll try it. Aglaron, Akalabeth, Balrog's Testicle, <laughs> Bane of Isildur, Sirith Gorgor, Dimu Borgir, Dol Amroth, Dragwal, Ethelduath, Falls of Roros, Fangorn, Minus Morgul, Nazgul, Numenor, Orcist, Orthanc, Soromon, Tengwar, Wet Kimono, and Witch King. There are well over 50 metal bands who took their handle from Tolkien's books, and probably many more. 
One list on TolkienMusic.com had 30 separate musicians using some variation of Lotharian for their band name, mostly metal and prog. Of course, one of those was a pre-movie soundtrack Enya Jam, and I think the name of it was Orkinoko Frodo. <laughs> and these bands come from everywhere, usually Western European, but also Russia, India, Serbia, Mexico, and Australia. One ring to rule them all, and in the geekiness, bind them. The movies also provided a catalyst for a lot of new-agey and home symphonic inspiration. There are a ton of these records out there as well. You can imagine the covers, musicians in cloaks and tall cloth boots with elvish jewelry sitting in idyllic forest spots holding lutes and harps. Interestingly enough, the sound is almost the polar opposite of black metal, but invasive and homegrown in much the same way. Another oddity popped up in the 90s called the Tolkien Ensemble, started by two composers with the expressed aim of creating the world's first complete musical interpretation of the poems and songs from The Lord of the Rings. The Danish orchestra had the blessing of the Tolkien estate, and four albums and some 150 musicians later, they met their lofty ambition to put the lyrical poems to music, including this Treebeard song. In the willow meads of Tassarinan, I walked in the spring. Ah, the sight and the smell of the spring. Inan And oh yes, that was Christopher Lee's Amazing Bellow. Besides singing in the ensemble and playing Saruman in the film trilogy, Christopher Lee actually met Tolkien in a pub called The Eagle and Child and allegedly received his blessing to play Gandalf should a film ever get made. Lee was a lifelong fan of Tolkien and actually took crappy wizard roles in the 90s to make a case for his getting a part in the movies, which worked out pretty well. Christopher Lee, who makes a good case for coolest person to ever live, also is Italian royalty, descended from Charlemagne, was a fencing master, witnessed the last public guillotine execution, hunted Nazis with Glenn Miller, probably, as part of British special operations, hobnobbed with Rasputin's assassins, climbed Mount Vesuvius three days before it erupted, spoke nine languages, and, best of all, wrote a symphonic metal album at the age of 87. He did all of that by 87. Isn't that crazy? Dungeon Synth, a sort of dark ambient music with roots in high fantasy and role-playing games, is also very much enthralled with the Tolkmeister General. This clip is a perfect soundtrack for your next epic quest into the murky depths to crush the armies of evil from an artist called Thangoradrim. Thangoradrim. Thangoradrim.
What is amazing is that outside these fringe musical genres, music about Middle Earth is almost non-existent. Starting in the 70s and 80s, punk music has almost completely ignored Tolkien. Even punk's offshoots, goth rock and indie rock, which seem like they might be ripe for some hobbit action, don't dare go near. Perhaps it was a reaction to folk, classic rock, and Prague's strong embrace of the fantasy books, or even just a disregard for the simplistic good-versus-evil narrative. Either way, Tolkien has no quarter with the hipsters and must seek shelter with crystal-hoarding postmodern hippies or the moody, crystal-smoking, black-clad Heshers. We mentioned Lovecraft earlier, but it seems like every style of music writes stuff about Lovecraft, and I don't know... Yeah why that is where Tolkien is very it's either the real metal or the real like kind of new agey stuff but just kind of most bands are just aren't writing stuff about him I think there's maybe there's something about horror itself and just the the fear that is involved with that or the anticipation of being scared where there's just more depth maybe there's Mm -hmm. more going on I don't know there's more tension The Fall has a song that's an H.P. Lovecraft song-ish, and Mountain Goats have Lovecraft in Brooklyn. There are a bunch of them. Yeah, yeah. He seems to be way more pervasive with kind of modern bands who are not in those real, you know, set genres. Maybe Lovecraft, even though he he was a horrible person. Yeah. Maybe his writing left a little bit more to interpretation, whereas Tolkien kind of laid it all out for you. It's either black or white, kind of like we've been talking about. So, Of course, nothing is absolute, and we had to include two really good Tolkien-inspired songs by indie artists. The first is from Scottish glum folk specialist Appendix Out, with this bittersweet tune called Grey Havens. The second is from neo-psychedelic garage madmen, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, with the tune The Lord of Lightning vs. Balrog's Testicle, which includes pretty great stoner rock riffs with a perfect mystical spoken word part. Lights up the carnival of paint. I endeavor to watch the panic, but I worry that I will faint. Floating fire, The ingenuity continues down the road. Melopoeia is a musical project that takes words and converts them into music. They elected to create an album called Tolkien a Nolendale by translating the first chapter of Tolkien's Silmarillion into synthesized orchestral black metal, with each letter representing one note on the chromatic 26 Edo scale and words translated into chords. The music has no artistic input from the creator, but just follows rules set forth by him. Here's a sample from the track, Voices of the Unear. Woven in harmony that passed beyond hearing. 
and the places of the dwelling of Illuvatar were filled to overflowing. At the heart of Tolkien's works are two central concepts the journey toward personal growth and the conflict between good and evil. Circumstances force the characters to change to meet the tasks at hand. Bilbo and Frodo have to leave their comfort zone and skip a few meals to become adventurers. Gandalf the Grey must become Gandalf the White with additional power to wield, but more responsibility to the free peoples. Aragorn must put aside his ranger lifestyle to become the king he was destined to be. Saruman and Gollum become corrupted by greed and power. Every character evolves or D&D evolves. Every character has a role in the story. The second grand theme is conflict. Sure, there's good and evil, but also nature versus industry, magic versus steel, hope versus fear, love versus hate. The knowledge of the past versus the murkiness of what's to come. It's a simplification to be sure, but one that is easily understood and easier to identify with. It's clear that these concepts touched a nerve with people, particularly musicians. Every musician understands the concept of journeying. They tour, they play, they promote, they deal with hardships. They try to become more than what they are, change into what they believe they can be. What's so compelling is these books as cultural artifacts embody these concepts as much as the story itself. The mythos of J.R.R. Tolkien is a perfect example of an artist losing control of their art. At some point, it belonged to the people despite his best effort to control it and frame it. The irony is that if Tolkien would have succeeded in restricting access to his literature, then Bilbo, Frodo, Gandalf, and the gang would have failed in their quest to enrich the lives of so many and bring Tolkien's vision of his world and ours. The books can be loved or even loathed for so many reasons. Bands and their fans can identify with a vast array of characters and what they represent. It's the cooperation of all those passions, light and dark, that make Middle-earth relevant in music and in life for generations untold. We did use a few sources for references, and we'll post those in the notes for the show. So you'll see those there. We used TolkienMusic.com, and an, I used an essay from We Are the Mutants, which is a great website for things like this. Yeah, if you have a second and you're interested, you should check out www.Tolkien-Music.com just to see the, the amazing amount of Tolkien bands and, and Tolkien-inspired songs. It's it's mind-blowing. Yeah, the only thing I've seen even close to that was Lovecraft. Right. I think Tolkien might have him beat, but not by much. And it, it just, like I said, Tolkien has very narrow kind of paths, whereas Lovecraft, who would be an interesting, that would be another interesting show as kind of a, a follow-up to this one at some point to see his influence and how it varies. But... This is a show that, you know, it's kind of combining two interests of mine. And it it was fun to research. And there was way more things than I thought. We didn't spend a lot of time on Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, which, yes, are, are hugely important. But most people already know about it. And, you know, it's not very interesting to us. I'd rather spend more time on Bo Hansen or what different stuff that you may not know about. 
I think most people understand that he really has a, a role, Tolkien has a role to play in pop culture. And those movies, if anything, just brought that back tenfold. All right, I guess it's time to play some songs. Let's do it. All right, I'm going to start with the songs today, and I have uh, a song I mentioned before. This is from that way. It's actually the Warfaring Strangers, Dark Scorch Canticles. It's a band called Stonehenge. And the name of the song is King of the Golden Hall. Stonehenge, and they um, put out a single in 69, it's out of the way from back in 69, but they were just one of those kind of metally garage band that probably spent a lot of time listening to Sabbath, Sabbath and Zeppelin and decided we could do it, and it's a definitely a Tolkien-inspired song, all sorts of mentions of that. They were a band from Iowa, and basically they were guys from like two different high schools, and 
one of the town high schools burned down. So they kind of combined and they had more time because there wasn't enough space to, to educate everybody. So they'd give some kids half a day off. And so they just kind of started this band. So young kids and eventually they would play some clubs and strip clubs and stuff like that. And it's a pretty representative of that, that whole collection, which is pretty great. And just a kind of a fun rock song about Tolkien that not many people heard until Numero came along and put it out. My first song is by a Nebraska hero. His name is Simon Joyner, and the song is called Flannery O'Connor. Savior. 
All right, that was Flannery O'Connor by Simon Joyner. And I have that from a 2006 compilation of Simon Joyner's singles, singles called Beautiful Losers that was put out on Jag Jaguar. And the song itself was first put out on a, as a cassette-only compilation for a various artists by Cactus Gum Recordings in 1996. I always thought you introduced me to that song, but have loved that song since the first time I heard it. It's great. It's got the same type of characters in it that Flannery O'Connor used in her stories. It's really well made. Yeah, it's a good song. I'm pretty sure I I think you introduced me to Simon Joyner, and I'm pretty sure I found it scouring the internet or something, but I remember putting it on a mix that I, I gave you and some other some other people because that was kind of like the the star song of the of the mix but i think that's still my favorite song of his and he's got some amazing songs yeah he's great he's really cool don't have a whole lot else we maybe this is it's a pretty long episode so just wanted to play that so people could hear how amazing simon joiner is my next track is nothing about literature or tolkien or anything like that this is a song called Goldener Writer, and it's by Joachim Witt. It is a new wave song from Germany, and here it is. Thank you. 
All right, that was Joachim Witt with Goldener Reiter, and it's about as fun a song as has ever been played. That came out in 1980 on his album, Silberblick. Flannery O'Connor, you introduced me to, and this one, our friend Tex introduced me to, and I love both of them. They're just songs that, especially this one, this gets stuck in my head all the time. I don't know what any of the lyrics mean. I've, I've done Google Translate, looked through it a little bit. It sounds like a it's about some kind of shopping spree by a schizophrenic or something, maybe? I don't know. My German's, <laughs> my German's about as good as your Swedish. It's just a really fun song, and I just wanted to kind of close out with something completely different and as far away from that bla- the black metal as, as I could get for a minute. Yeah, we, were, we went heavier on metal on this record or on this show than we've probably ever done. Same thing would happen if we did Lovecraft. I think there's a wider range of genres, but there's still a lot of metal bands that, and a lot of the same bands we talked about that also have songs that reference or are inspired by Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah. He really, there was a lot of different influences, including my next song. I did get this record for this show. As we were digging through, I found this. And um, we'll talk about it after I play it. This is just a, a clip of the song. The entire song is 12 minutes, so I don't want to play that. But I'm going to play you a clip. And the song is by a band called The Nazgul. And it's a clip from the song The Tower of Barad-dûr.
right, that was the Nazgul with a clip from the Tower of Barad Dor, and it's kind of abstract, experimental type electronic music. There's a little bit of a story with this, and Joe and I have kind of talked about this. So I'm going to have him help me out too. So basically, in the late '90s, this label called Sci-Fi said that they had found some of these recordings from a 70s German label called Pyramid Records. Pyramid Records was, there's a backstory and all this stuff, but it was basically one or two guys, and they put out a handful of records, 50 or 100 copies of each, this being one of them. So they reissued them on CD. A few years ago, they took a few of those six or seven, and they reissued a couple of them on, on vinyl, complete with liner notes and explanations. So this band is the Nazgul, and on the back it says it has um, featuring Frodo, Pippin, and, and Gandalf. Those are the artists, and it's supposed to be kind of an anonymous band. But most people think this is just a big hoax. They f- think Pyramid Records did never exist. They think that it was some guys in the 90s who were just kind of messing around and nobody can really produce solid proof of like original copies of the vinyl. So it sounds like it's probably from the 90s, but what do you think, Joe? Yeah, I lean more towards hoax when we were reading about it. I think most people seem to, and it's because of that sound. I think it's a hoax. I think that's where most people land on. But despite it being a hoax, which is to me kind of adds to the kind of the it being a fun record, even though it's not a fun sound. It's a perfect Halloween album. It's really, really good, creepy, ambient, dark music. Hoax or not, it's awesome. You know, the the backstory is kind of fun. They say that to make some of the music, and again, nobody knows if this is true, they had a instrument, they made an instrument called a gong, G-H-O-N-G, which is just... Four, four or six oven racks tied to a wooden cross in the middle of them that they could hit whenever they needed to <laughs> when they're making this music, Frodo, Pippin, and Gandalf, whoever they are. And the backstory has that they were pretty famous kraut rockers who wanted to make an anonymous record so their band didn't know they were messing around. You know, just a bunch of, of BS. Yeah. So who knows? But um, whoever made it, it's great music. Again, most people didn't hear about it till the 90s. So... It is something that, you know, if you're interested in, you know, you may want to grab a copy. It seems like it's one of those things that just got put out, but it's probably not going to be around forever. One of the things a lot of people said about it, thinking it was more likely to be a hoax, is that nobody had heard of it before. But the rationale behind that that sort of explains it is that it was recorded, but then shelved and never released. People wouldn't have heard of it. That's true. That makes it even more fun for me. I think it's, it kind of adds to it. They did a smart job creating this myth. Yeah. And they released like six albums at the same time that all have pretty different sounds. I haven't listened to all of them. I listened to one other one. Sci-fi did. Sci-fi under the guise that it was Pyramid Records. They're different fake bands though, right? They're different. Yeah, they're different fake bands. It could be the same guy who did them all. Who knows? Right. That's true. But the whole idea is that there were six different albums that they found and they put them out. Anyways, really cool, fun story. I like the mystery behind it. The album cover is amazing. Definitely check that out. We'll post it on Instagram and on our website and stuff like that. 
really, really like that. And, and like Joe said, if you want like a kind of non-invasive Halloween music, it's it's perfect. It's I really I've listened to it a couple times since I've got it. I really enjoy it. All right, I think all we have left is to settle up on some uh, trivia. Great. What we're gonna do is I'm gonna play those tracks again, those clips, and I'm gonna have six clips. And what I would like for you to do is tell me the artist, the song title, and then what's the theme, kind of joining them all together. Okay. So here we go. Track one. So over I jumped and she pulled me down, down to a seaweed bed, and a pillow made of a tortoise shell. She placed beneath my head. She fed me shrimps and caviar upon a silver dish. From her head to her waist, she was just to my taste, but the bottom part was a fish. Track two. Won't you take my hand? We'll go back in time to that mystic land. When the dewdrops cry and the cats meow. Track three. Track four. Swim to me. Swim to me. Track six. Western shores, those beautiful sailors journeyed to the south and the North Americas with ease in their ships with painted sails. So hopefully that wasn't too difficult, at least most of them. How do you think those went? I think the first song is Shell Silverstein. Silverstein? It is, yes. I don't know for a fact what the name of the song is. I'm guessing it's like Mermaids or something like that. Yeah, I was trying to give you a hint uh, with that. It is called Mermaid. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I vaguely remember that from one of his books. We used to go up to a cabin and like, you know, they had all his books late in the, late in the attic and where the sidewalk ends. So we used to read those and those used to be some of my favorites. His albums are really good too. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's got a very distinct voice. All right, the second was Spinal Tap Stonehenge. Yes. The third, I have no clue. I I, I, I didn't even have a lead on it. Okay, it's Sinead O'Connor with the song Troy. Oh, okay. Troy, very good. Um, four, I'm pretty sure, is Tim Buckley's song to the siren. It is song to the siren. It is not Tim Buckley. It's not? Is it the This Mortal Coil? No, no, that one is a female singer. Yeah, I didn't think, I thought, okay, who was it? This is Robert Plant. Oh, okay. I knew the song, so I assumed it was Tim Buckley, but it it did not sound like Tim Buckley. No, yeah, it totally doesn't. There aren't a whole whole lot of versions of that. I I really like the version from This Mortal Coil. I like the Tim Buckley one. I had never heard the Robert Plant, but I thought it fit in with the show a little bit. Yeah, sure. All right, 
Number five, I think it's Shocking Blue Venus, but I'm not sure. It is, yes. Yep, I tried to find a spot in that song that would be harder. Yeah, you didn't give me much to work with. The last song is the song that bothers me, because I feel like I know this. I feel like I might even have it. It's some sort of 60s or 70s songwriter, I think. Yes. Like a folk guy. Yep. Uh, Let's see. Cat Stevens. It's not like James Taylor or Simon Garfunkel. You wouldn't do that, I don't think. No. Oh, God, no. (laughs) Do you want hints? Yeah, give me a hint. All right, I've got two hints here. Both of them will probably just totally give it away. The first one is that Dylan humiliated him in Don't Look Back. Oh, Donovan. Um, and you, the other one was something about your children. Uh, but I <laughs> yeah. wasn't, yeah, it's Donovan um, with Atlantis. Oh, yeah. I'm so, I wasn't supposed to tell you that. I probably, I probably would have got it. Okay. So we got Mermaid, Stonehenge, Troy. Which doesn't quite fit. Songs of the Siren, Venus, and Atlantis. I think it's all just kind of mythological type stuff. Yeah, it's all mytholo- all based in mythology, so okay. Troy. Yeah. But actually, in that song, the song is about a phoenix rising. Phoenix from the flame is what, one of the things she repeats over and over and over. But you would have had to know the song pretty well, I guess. Yeah. That's off of her Lion in the Cobra album, which... I really like, and that song I love. I think it's wonderful. Very good. Good quiz. I enjoyed it. All right. Well, let's uh, let's wrap this up. A couple things we got to talk about. First thing we got to do before we uh, head out is thank our network, Pantheon Music Podcast. Lots of fantastic podcasts, all related to music. Most of it not about Tolkien, but... We, we got to have our niche somewhere, but lots of great stuff. Uh, I think they're putting on a Dylan podcast. Do you see that, Joe? They are. And I've listened to that podcast quite a bit. It's really good. Good. It's called, Is It Rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. It's I like it a lot. I would recommend people listen to it, obviously, because we want you to, because if it's good, we would like that. And Basic Folk, which I've mentioned before. Yeah, she's really good. Yeah, that might be my favorite right now. There's a new one called What's That Song? where the guy uh, breaks down songs into really cool detail. There's, a lot of it's real technical stuff, but a lot of it's kind of fun, kind of things you wouldn't pay attention to, which I, I listened to a couple of those. They're pretty fascinating. So if, if you like our podcast, you're going to find other podcasts that you like. And so listen to them. Help them out like you help us out. Maybe leave them a review. Maybe leave us a review. Also, check us out on Twitter. Follow us there. And on Instagram, our handle for both of those is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. You can email us at podcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page. Just come visit. I can just imagine like the some of the Tolkien nerds kind of finding us and writing us. Balrog doesn't even have a ball sack. It is a, you know, ungendered demon from the deep or whatever yeah it's not a sack (laughs) (laughs) it's a a flame harness thanks everybody for listening and uh please check us out interact with us send us an email send us ideas we got some i think some pretty cool shows coming up we will talk to you next time 
How big glory you? Or your board just walking. It's going to be our most offensive show yet. <laughs> we just got kicked off Pantheon. I'd like to see Tiny Tim's ball wrong testicle. <laughs> if he were, if Tiny Tim had heard this episode, he would have come like five times. Ooh, I got to get to the Helms Deep. <laughs> if I do it one more time, it'll be like um, doing Candyman in the mirror. <laughs> and it's going to pop up. <laughs> She's going to be really short, though. <laughs> Three feet tall, and yeah. If she's that short, she'll put her dick through that. <laughs> <laughs> it's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.